I want to invite you to join me in your Bibles in Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, as we've been doing a little bit during this series, being that it's uh, not necessarily an exegetical um, sermon series where we're working our way through a book of the Bible, which is what we often do around here, uh, we, we uh, are bouncing around a little bit more in Scripture because of the nature of this series. Ephesians chapter 1, and uh, the title of today's message is a Soteriology, uh, The God Who Saves. We're, as we talk about the uh, doctrines of the Bible or theology in Scripture, we're talking about how theology is not just something that we learn to make us seem smarter or we can impress each other with, with theological terms. I mean, soteriology, that's that's, a, that's one to kind of tuck in the back pocket to impress people with. But the reality is, soteriology simply means the doctrine of salvation. Our God is a God who saves. Our God is a God who redeems. Our God is a God who brings people to himself. And we've been seeing that through this series. And specifically, we're going to, to sort of narrow this doctrine down to one area because there's so much that we could say about the doctrine of salvation. There's so many different paths that we could go down be, because there's so much to what God has done to bring us to himself, to change our hearts and to make us new. And I thought there's no way we're going to try to do an overview of this entire doctrine. So we're going to hone in on one aspect of this doctrine, and that is union with Christ. Union with Christ. What I'm talking about this morning, I, I'm going to freely confess, I do not understand. It is a mystery to me. It's not because I didn't study enough to get ready for this morning. It's simply because this is out of the reach of my comprehension. And I, I think you'll agree that for all of us, th there's, there's a profound mystery to union with Christ. As we look at a little bit of what Scripture has to say about it, uh, my hope is that you will j get just a taste of the sumptuous feast that is the doctrine of union with Christ. And my hope is that that throughout the coming days and weeks, you'll belly up to the table to taste more fully of these precious truths. And so I want to ask, first and foremost, what is this doctrine? What is the doctrine of the union with, union with Christ? Some theologians have called it the most important doctrine we've never heard of. It, it, it is so crucial, it's so foundational to our salvation, but yet we don't often talk about it. It's everywhere in the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings. Once you begin to look for it, you'll see it, you'll see it in every one of his books, and especially in the book of Ephesians. The doctrine of union with Christ is simply us, I say simply, but to try to put it simply, it's us in Christ and Christ in us. The Bible teaches that when we became Christians, we were placed in Christ, and Christ is in us, and we are with Christ. It's really, as John Murray says, the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. And it's foundational in every way. Object lessons obviously can't capture everything, but I just thought of this a little bit this morning and, and thought maybe it would be a little bit helpful. Uh, as I was rooting around my uh, son's bedroom in the dark looking for toys at 5.45 a.m. today, I, I couldn't see a whole lot in the dark, so uh, I, I found a Dr. Strange bobblehead. It's, sorry, there's not any theological significance to the toy I found. It's just what I could see in the dark there. So um, the Bible teaches us that 
that when we came to know Christ, that when we trusted in Him, when we were saved, we were placed in Christ by God. That's all of us. This is not an extra, extra blessing. This is not reserved for only certain of us, but we were all placed in Christ. So this box is going to represent in Christ. You can see that this is not a very, these are not very spiritual objects we're working with here. We got Dr. Strange going in this in Christ. And what Ephesians 1, I believe it's verse 13, tells us is that when we were placed in Christ, we were, we were sealed in him by the Holy Spirit. So there was this, this putting of us in Christ, this union with Christ, and then through the Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches that God sealed us in him. And now, at first glance, that may not seem like a a really profound truth, but I want to just explore it a little bit further this morning. Uh, first of all, I want us to see that it's an intimate and a personal union. This is not something that is just afar a, a off, that it's like, oh cool, that's a neat thing to look at. Like here, this is an object that we can step back and observe and say, oh, that's cool. This box is not at all personal, right? But th this doctrine itself is very personal. In fact, if we had time, there's so many scriptures that we could turn to, but you can make note in Ephesians chapter 5, at the end of Ephesians chapter 5, and many of you will be familiar with this, Paul talks about uh, uh, husbands and wives and how husbands are supposed to love their wives as Christ loves the church. You know that passage? Well, he tells us that in, in, in that illustration that the one flesh union that husbands and wives have as they come together is a picture of what happens when we're placed in Christ. Now, I don't need to go into explicit detail to explain how intimate that correlation is that God is making there. That union that a man and a woman share as they come together in marriage is a picture of the union with us in Christ. You can see that it is an intimate union. It involves our deepest nature. D.A. Carson says the thought is, breath is breathtakingly extravagant. It is an intimate and personal union. I also wrote that down that it's an illustrated union, and we're just going to briefly run through these. If you don't get a chance to jot them down and you're a note taker, uh, contact the office and, and we can get these, get these for you. I don't know, maybe I did put them in the notes, but uh, in, in Ephesians 2, it illustrates this union with a building and a cornerstone. It's a building and it's in a cornerstone. Uh, that, that just as that cornerstone is absolutely foundational to the building having a, a proper structure and standing, so too is our union with Christ foundational to the rest of our salvation. In John 15, Jesus famously likens it to a vine and its branches. You think about that. The vine and the branches, that necessary union for life to take place, for fruit to grow on the vine, it must remain connected to the branches. In, in, in Ephesians 1, which we'll read here in a moment, it, it talks about the members of a human body and its head. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, we see the same truth. And then finally, as we mentioned, the union between a husband and a wife. The Bible tries to take several different ways to explain this, this beautiful coming together of Jesus and us. We also need to see that it's a Trinitarian union. It's a Trinitarian union. 
Marcus Peter Johnson says this, he says, to say that our union with Christ is Trinitarian means that by virtue of being incorporated into the life of Christ, we participate in the life, the love, and the fellowship of the Trinity. This may sound familiar because we, we talked about this a little bit in the, in the, in, in we, when we talked about the doctrine of the Trinity. He says, because the Son is one with the Father, our being joined to the Son means that we're joined to the Father. And because the Spirit exists as the bond of communion between the Father and the Son, He brings us into that communion by uniting us to Christ. He goes on to say, this staggering biblical revelation forms the personal foundation for all the benefits that constitute our salvation. This is the, the starting point for all of the blessings. It's sort of like in, in our culture, when you turn 18, there are all kinds of magical things that happen and responsibilities that you now have and privileges and freedoms. It's like, woohoo, I'm 18, I'm an adult now. It's sort of that, that gateway into all of these freedoms. And, and, and what Paul is teaching us here through the Word of God is that union with Christ is the foundation or the, the, the gateway to all of these privileges that we have as followers of Jesus Christ, as those bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards says, There was, as it were, an eternal society or family in the Godhead in the Trinity of persons. It seems to be God's design to admit the church into the divine family as his son's wife. We have been brought in to union with Almighty God. Think about this for a moment. We have been united to the Father, the Son, by the Spirit. What an amazing, profound truth, even if we don't understand it, because, fourthly, it is a mysterious union. We simply don't fully understand what it means to be in Christ. Some theologians even call it a mystical union. The term mystical is often associated with Eastern religions, and we get a little bit, and maybe rightfully so, get a little bit nervous when we hear the word, but the... the the believer's union with Christ is mystical. By mystical, we simply mean that there's an imagery and a work of God that's taken place that we don't fully understand. It's abstract. We can't nail it down. This is about the best I can do as far as giving us something concrete to understand. It is, a, it is something that none of us saw, none of us uh, really felt in a tangible way. It's something that, that, that we wouldn't know happened if God didn't tell us it happened. But once we realize it happened, it begins, and, 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 and we understand it to the best of our spirit-given ability, it begins to impact us in profound ways, as we'll see in a moment. I do just want to add this footnote. Union with Christ does not mean that we become gods. I've, I've heard that go around in some, some theological circles, that by being united with God, we now are some form of deity ourselves. And Scripture never goes to that length to, to say that that transpired. By being united with Christ it is of profound importance, but it doesn't mean that we are now on par with God or even like a subset of deity. We need to make sure that we're careful about that. At the end, though, why does it matter that believers have been united with Christ? I always try to ask this when I read a passage of Scripture, because I'm convinced that this is the Word of God, and I'm convinced that, that everything God has put in here has purpose. It may not be all equally profound to us. In my Bible reading, I'm in 
uh, 1 Chronicles right now, and there are a whole bunch of genealogies in there that are not especially spiritually and deeply moving to me as I read them. I don't, I'm not ashamed to say that. But I do believe God has purposefully put them in there. God has reason. They are the inspired word of God, and there's, there's purpose behind them. But as we open the scriptures, we can't help but see this over and over and over again in the New Testament, this idea of being in Christ. And so I, I always like to ask, well, why did God say this? Why is this in here? When he could have used this space to say something else, why did he choose to say this? And I believe that there's a purpose. There are several reasons that I just I jotted down. And there could be many, many more. But why does it matter that believers have been united with Christ? Well, it's, it's absolutely vital. It's absolutely vital. We, we couldn't have done without it. Christ the scriptures teach, is our very life. Colossians tells us that. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will also appear with him in glory. Christ is our very life. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Without that union, without that mystical union, we don't have that. You see, you and I can't live the Christian life without union with Christ. We can't do it. We need the life of Christ surging and pulsating through us in this mysterious way for us to be able to do what God even asks us to do. The illustration of the vine and branches from John 15 is perfect. I mean, some of you, some of you love, uh, love growing gardens and, and do a beautiful job with it. And you understand that when there's, there's a fruit, it, it cannot grow if it's disconnected from the tree, right? Like, like I remember as kids, we had fruit trees in our backyard, and they were never especially profound at producing fruit. They were not great fruit trees. I'm not sure if that was the fault of our soil or the gardener or whatever, but uh, they weren't great. But we had some that would produce occasionally. And I remember we'd go out there, we'd be so excited as kids to get that fruit when it first appeared. It would be small and green, whether it was, it was an apple that was supposed to be red or uh, it was a pear coming, and it, would just not, it was clearly not full grown, fully not, not ripe. And we would long to just pull the trigger. We wanted, to, we wanted to try it out. And my mom would have to tell us, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. Because if we plucked that fruit too early, it wasn't going to grow because, well, it, it wasn't connected to the source of life. That's why Jesus said that I am the vine and, and you are the branches. And, and he said, everyone who remains in me can bear fruit. Being united with Christ is absolutely vital. This union, secondly, is the fountain of all spiritual blessings. And, and here's where I wish we really had time to spend, but we're just going to go through these kind of fast. But the, the, I've heard our salvation likened to a diamond, a beautiful diamond. Now, I've never held a diamond in my hand that was that big. <laughs> Let's just pretend for a moment for sake of illustration. Could you imagine? You've probably seen them in movies or in, in books or something. Could you imagine a diamond that large? And, and you, 
you begin to look at it, and the, and the thing about a diamond is that, that it's, it's, it's beautiful from all different angles. In every way you look at it, has a, depending on how the light's hitting it, or if you put it against a black backdrop, you see different reflections, and you see different aspects of that diamond's beauty. Our salvation is much like that. Every way you turn it around, every way you look at it, there's, there's beauty to behold. And here's the thing, it all springs from or stems from our union with Christ. Let me just go over a few of them briefly. First of all, justification. The doctrine of justification is that we've been made right with God through Jesus Christ. And we're told in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It ties in our state of being that we're not under condemnation. We're no longer under judgment by God because we are in Christ Jesus. We have been outside of Christ. Dr. Strange and the rest of us are under condemnation. Before we meet Jesus, we are under his wrath because of our sin. But as we confess our sin, as we come to him in repentance and received his free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, we are placed in Christ and now we are shielded from God's condemnation because we are sealed in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation. It's tied to our adoption. It's tied to our adoption. Adoption is that precious truth that's very closely linked with union with Christ that we are now God's sons and daughters. I mean, every time I read this passage or like Romans 8, I just, I love, I love the biblical truth of adoption. I love it. Because it reminds us that we're wanted. It reminds us that we're welcome in God's family. You know, we may have been a part of families that we didn't feel very welcome in. Maybe you could stand up and share stories right now, even as adults, of not feeling very welcome at family gatherings. I would venture to guess everybody in this room has at least a little bit of family dysfunction. Some of you, some of you could tell stories, and you have shared stories with me, that, the, that it's more than just a little dysfunction, that the train came way off the rails, and it's nowhere close to the tracks right now. <laughs> and, and that's hard. It's hard. You can't help but be affected by that. Because we're born longing for that acceptance. We're born desiring and want, we're created to be a part of a family. And the doctrine of adoption says, is God saying, I want you. Not you're tolerated here. Fine, come on in. Make sure you wipe your feet. Okay, I guess. Or don't ever come back. None of those things. The doctrine of adoption says, I want you and you're mine. You're my child. And no matter how our parents were growing up, good, bad, or otherwise, even the best of parents are still sinners. And we're welcomed in by a perfect heavenly father who says, I long for you to be my daughter. I long for you to be my son. And here's the beauty of adoption. One of the beauties is it's, it's tied directly to union with Christ. It says, through faith in Galatians 3.26, you're all sons and daughters of God in Christ Jesus. By nature of being united with Christ, you are his sons and daughters. And see, I, I love this. I love the picture of being sealed in Christ, of this being a, a done deal, a work of God that is sure and secure. Because there's no chance of him saying, you know what, you blew it one too many times. You're out on the streets. This is a failed adoption. I don't want you anymore. 
We are united with him and we are his for all eternity. Oh, there's so much we could say, but uh, for sake of time, we'll keep going. Sanctification, that is the doctrine of us becoming more and more like Jesus, of his, his transforming us in our daily lives so that we will live holy lives and become more like him. Again, tied to the doctrine of union with Christ, where Jesus said in that passage we've already mentioned, I'm the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Fourthly, the doctrine of preservation. The doctrine of preservation. This is that passage that we've referred to. In him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. What a precious truth that we have been sealed in Jesus Christ. We are placed in him. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this. He writes, Behold, he has put his people into the hands of his dear son. He has even put us into Christ's body, for we are members of his body. He sees us in Christ to have died, in him to have been buried, and in him, him to have risen again. You can read about that in Romans 6. As the Lord Jesus is well-pleasing to the Father, so in him are we well-pleasing to the Father also. For our being in him identifies us with him. If then our acceptance with God stands on the footing of Christ's acceptance with God, it stands firmly and in an unchanging argument with the Lord God for doing us good. If we stood before God in our own individual righteousness, our ruin would be sure and speedy. But in Jesus, our life is hid beyond peril. Firmly believe that until the Lord rejects Christ, he cannot reject his people. Until he repudiates the atonement and the resurrection, he cannot cast away any of those with whom he has entered into covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how sure and secure your salvation is this morning, my brothers and sisters. You see, outside of Christ, if, if, we, if we see ourselves, even as followers of Christ, if we see ourselves outside of Christ, it can begin to be easy to see ourselves based upon our own merit. We may know intellectually that we are saved by the merit of Jesus Christ, but outwardly we look at our behavior and we see how we, we messed up with our kids or we're short with our wife or ignored a clear opportunity to share the gospel with a coworker, and we, we feel this guilt or this shame. And out, if, if we see ourselves as outside with Christ, that can be all-consuming and we just start beating ourselves up at the failure and the sin and the shame and in our footing our foundation can become shaky because all of a sudden we begin to look at ourselves and look at our works. But if we see ourselves as in Christ, preserved in Jesus Christ, we know that the Father sees us in Him. We know that the Father sees us as accepted, as beloved. When He looks at us, He's not looking at how well we did today. He's looking at the finished work of Jesus Christ and He says, I am well pleased. Yes, my brothers and sisters, we need to strive to love well. We need to strive to fight against sin by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But at the end of the day, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you're secure and accepted in Christ. And He is our life. And He is our foundation of a sure welcome by God the Father. And then finally, glorification glorification. And that's simply the doctrine that it's sort of the, the final step in the application of redemption. 
as we are united with God at the return of Jesus Christ. And Colossians chapter 3, verse 4 reminds us that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He is our life. So as we close, I want to ask, as we've been asking all along the way, I mean, there, there are so many things that this doctrine does for our soul that is so good. If we'll just meditate and rest in it. The encouragement and the strength and the spiritual nourishment that we can receive by meditating on our union with Christ is, is just profound. And I know that we've just scratched the surface here, and I, I hope that we've whetted your appetite a little bit to dive deeper into, especially the writings of Paul, but into the scriptures to understand this more fully. And, and this week's uh, weekly that Hunter sends out, we'll have some, some more resources if you want to dive in a little deeper. But I want to ask, how does union with Christ impact mission? First of all, it reminds us that it's not only about me, but it's about a we. You see, all along here, we've been talking about sort of the individual blessing of being united with Christ. But here's the reality. It's not just you and me. It, it, is, a, it is, a, is a communal union as well. And I don't understand how this works. But Ephesians 2 talks about this. When he says at the, at the end of Ephesians 2, uh, verse 14, he says, For Jesus is our peace, who made both groups, so Jews and Gentiles, made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made no effect, made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put hostility to death. So what this means is it's not just me and Christ, it's not just me and Jesus, but others are as well. And I found this little bear down the hallway a bit, so this is, this is you and I, this is the church. And we're brought and placed in Christ individually and collectively. This is an us thing. It's not just us on an island and me and Jesus having our time together. Thank you, Jesus, for putting me in, in you and uniting me with you. But it's at us. It's, it's the church. It's the body of Christ. Christ is the head. We're the body, and we're placed together. There is a togetherness about this doctrine. And as we think about mission, it reminds us that this is never meant to be a me and Jesus sort of faith. Ever. And we're fighting against the Christian cultural grain in that regard that, that says all I need is my Bible and Jesus or this devotional book and Jesus, and that's what it's all about, my personal relationship with Christ. I, I've used that term many, many times, but it's fraught with danger because it almost sounds like that's, that's all I need, me and Jesus, and that couldn't be further from the New Testament teaching. We are brought together into one body under Christ, the head and so we're reminded that this life that we live, our few years upon this earth, is about being together, discipling one another, pouring into each other, checking in on each other. Secondly, how does this impact mission? The nature of this union is one of drawing in. The nature of this union is one of Jesus saying, come in and you are welcome into union with me. 
In, in fact, that's, that's what is said here in, in Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's a beautiful picture. Someone who was once distant, a long, long, long way away, have been brought close, near. There have been times, I remember when, when we were, uh, my wife and I were first married and, uh, and uh, she had been really missing her family after a number of months and just not being able to see them and celebrate the holidays with them. And, and, um, and I remember them calling one time and just saying, hey, what if, what if we flew you out here um, and you could just spend a little time out here and say hi to everybody? And, and they, understand her, they understood her, her longing, her desire to be near. And so they did what they could to bring her close, to draw her in so that she could experience that that precious family time. That's what God has done with you and I. We were about as far away as you could possibly be. I've heard some of your stories, and I know that some of you uh, ran. I mean, you were on a full-on sprint from God, doing everything you could to run as far from Him as you could. Others of us maybe grew up in the church, and uh, we had sort of that Phariseeism, that 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 we thought we were pretty good. We thought, yeah, Jesus died for me, but he barely had to, just barely had to, because I'm pretty good. And um, the reality is, is that all of us were the same distance. The murderer and the self-righteous Pharisee were all a long, long way away. And Jesus brought us near through his blood. You see, union with Christ reminds us that, that the life that we live as followers of Jesus it's, it's a life of bringing others in. It's not a lobbing the gospel out, standing afar off, saying, hey, you should think about Jesus. But it's a welcoming in, a bringing close those who need him. The doctrine of union with Christ is profoundly encouraging to our hearts but it also reminds us to be on mission. As we finish here, I want to do something that we, we don't often do. Um, I, I, I was, I was going to read this passage at the beginning of the message, but I, I want to finish with it instead. And um, the, the, the reason I say we don't often do this, we always read Scripture, but I'm going to read a larger section of Scripture than normal. And I, I just want to encourage you to, to listen to the Word of God. I could think of no better way to finish this morning than to meditate on what the book of Ephesians tells us it means to be in Christ. If you're an underliner or circler in your Bible and you want to follow along in, in, in the scriptures, um, a great exercise is to circle and under, or underline every time you see the phrase in him or in Christ or in the beloved. But otherwise, just feel free to close your eyes and listen to the scriptures as Paul expounds on this precious doctrine. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we also have received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to His glory. In Him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him, seating him at the right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and once you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the, the, the spirit that's now at work in the disobedient. We too, all previously, lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out those inclinations of our flesh and, and thoughts. We were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, but God who is rich in mercy because of His great love that He had for us, He made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace through His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace, grace through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we... We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called 
the uncircumcised, by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands, at that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of promise, and you were without hope, without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In His flesh, He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that He might create in Himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that He might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which He put hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him... The whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you've heard about the administration of God's grace that He gave me for you, this mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you were able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all his saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heaven. This is according to His eternal purpose, which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. So then, I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are for your glory. As I read this last section, let's make it our prayer, our closing prayer this morning. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant each of us, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in our inner beings through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width, and the height, and the depth of God's love. And to know Christ's love 
that surpasses knowledge, that each of us may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him, the one who is able to do above and beyond all that we could ask or think, according to the power that works in us, in you, to Him, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Just remember, please, if, if you'd like a time of prayer, you're welcome to come up front and join us. We'd love to pray for you or with you or uh, just let you pray. May God bless you this week as you go forth in Christ.